Welcome to the Golf Beneath the Surface podcast, or hopefully welcome back to the Golf Beneath the Surface podcast. My name is Raymond Pryor. My areas of expertise are performance psychology, performance neuroscience, and sleep science. And with me, as always, is my very good friend and expert instructor, Chase Cooper. Hello, Chase. Doc, you're uh, you're playing injured today. What happened? Playing, playing hurt today, man. I got a rambunctious pup that uh, busted me in the mouth and broke a tooth. And so I'm just coming. I'm still got a little bit of Novocaine going after the uh, the dental repair. So um, there'll be a great opportunity for our listeners to hear less of me and more of you today. They, they don't want that. But if you start slurring, if you start slurring too much, we'll know. Uh, we'll know what's happening. You're uh, you're a little. Yeah, if I start little drooling, the first, if I start drooling a little bit, yeah, I'm, I'm free and clear of any uh, drugs. But there's definitely some uh, some numbness, and I'm sure that tingling and pain is going to start to kick in here, but. Hand, handling it's, adversity so it's sometimes sometimes you got to play hurt so we're going to do that today um and today we are going to talk about learning and the bottom line is if you're getting some golf instruction or if you're trying to get better at something as we alluded to in our last episode we talked a lot about getting a lesson and how you can promote learning and stack the deck in your favor to get the most out of those as possible or really talking about if we're getting better at something we need what we're really talking about is can we learn it more learn it in more depth learn it better uh and if you're going to go see an instructor or get better at the physical motions of golf or the psychological elements of golf the strategic elements learning more about equipment that requires us to understand learning better in order to get more out of those so essentially if we learn how to learn we learn better which is a long way of raymond saying let's talk about learning today um yeah Chase, Def- from a from a golf instructor standpoint, another way of saying instructor is teacher. Um, talk to us about learning a little bit. You know, the PJ talks about really three main learning styles, and we were talking before this about there's there's really a lot more. There's you could really say there's an infinite amount of ways mm-hmm. to learn. Um, the majority of people that I work with personally, um, they fall into three categories. You're either a visual learner. You learn by seeing. That's where indoor indoor teaching environments tend to be really good. We can put you on a big screen and we can really dive into the to the minutia and talk about very specific things in the golf swing. Um, you've got uh, auditory learners. You learn by being pretty much told what to do. You need to do this, this, this. Um, and then you've got feel based or kinesthetic learners that need instructors to get their hands dirty and get their hands in there and, and really kind of put you in position and get you to feel it and. And correct me if I'm wrong if I'm wrong on this, Doc, but I would say no one's really a hundred percent one way or the other. There's always a little bit of a blend. Is that correct? Yeah, correct. Like people tend to fall, you know, if you were thinking about learning styles, and again, we could go into a list of fifty different learning right. areas and proficiencies, right? But you're hitting the the primary sensories, which is like visual, auditory, and and kinesthetic is like your senses, like what you physically feel with stuff. Nobody is just one and not of the other, because otherwise it would take us way too long to learn something. And there would only be one methodology for us to learn something, which isn't true. We learn in a variety of ways. But some people tend to gravitate more toward one or more than others, which is important. Again, so we talked about tiers of instructors, whatever they might be teaching, whether it's math, science, the golf swing, psychology, et cetera, that one of the things a really good instructor will do is ask you about learning. And how you have started to pick things up before. And in a golf swing, oftentimes, certainly kinesthetic, most people are going to have a, le- a level of kinesthetic learning in this because it's a physical motion. Right. 
But a really good instructor in anything is going to start to try to hone in on, okay, well, where are your most proficient areas for learning? Which doesn't mean you won't tap into some other ones because they can be really complementary for each other. But it's very rare that one person is only learning in one way or another. They're usually a combination thereof, but they're not necessarily evenly distributed. So if you had like a Venn diagram, there's a lot of overlap, but some may be overlapping more than others. And one of the things I try to do, I, I kind of joke about this, I try to throw as much at the wall and see what they can retain and see what what sticks. Um, you know, I'm a, I like to use a lot of technology, so we're going to we're going to do a lot of visual stuff. I'm going to video and and um, look at trackman numbers and look at as much data as possible. And then obviously I'm not going to not going to throw all the data at them, but I'll use the specific the specific um, things that we want to look at that we want to change. And so I'm going to. I'm going to try to cover all bases, um, you know, until especially early on in the first lesson, I'm going to hammer you with some visual stuff. I'm going to um, ask about some feels that you've maybe tried to do in the past. To, you know, if you've if you've been told about the issue that we're going to work on and then obviously we've got to talk to each other. So I'm going to I'm going to talk a lot and talk about the problem. Um, and then I kind of use I'll use cues from my students to, to get the feedback of how, you know, I'll, I'll ask them, do you tend to. Are you more visual person? Are you more feel based? Some sometimes they don't really know. Sometimes they're like, "Nah, I'm not real sure." And then sometimes they're like, "Oh yeah, I'm I'm definitely this way." So then I'll, I'll kind of tailor towards that. But I tend to throw it at them until they re, until they report back and kind of give me a direction, and then I'll start to focus focus on that. But I um I like to tell tell people too, like when I'm when I'm trying to make a change with a student, I may give I may give you like if we're working on your swing doc, like I may give you. 50 different thoughts around the same the same problem and let you grab the one that you like. I want you to be the one that does the learning versus me trying to tell you that you have to do it this way. Yeah, so you're tapping into a variety of different learning styles and uh, perhaps areas where someone might learn. But you're, you said you're going to gravitate more toward visually to begin with or typically. I would say typically visual because I want them to understand the problem first. I want them to see, at least have an idea of why I'm, what I'm trying to fix, why I'm trying to fix it, the direction we're going to go. Um, I, I always use, I say always 99% of the time I'm going to use feel last. Um, and, and, and sometimes like if they're really having a hard time grasping it, I may get them into a position and show them, have them feel what they're doing wrong. I want them to identify the problem first. That's always, always the first goal for me. What is the problem? Why are you here? You know, what is your pain point that I can, I can help fix and then, or help solve. And then once, once I believe that they understand what I'm asking them to do, then we'll dive in and, and add some feels and, and I'll, you know, I'll first ask them to do it, fix they see the problem. They'll see if they can fix it, and they'll give it a give it an attempt. And if if they're close, okay, cool. I'll ask some questions. What did you feel? What were you thinking? Well, what you know? What what were you trying to do? And if they're not, and and it's not working, then I'm going to move them last, because again, I want them to do the learning. I want them to do the work. Um, and then a lot of times we'll do resistance based stuff. I'm I'm really big on Goldilocks theory. I got to give a shout out to Dr. Will Wu and my good friend John Dunnigan with the Skill Coaching Alliance. They talk a lot about the Goldilocks theory, too much, too little, just right. And I love the idea of if you're making a bad move or a wrong move and we're trying to fix it, I want you to keep doing it. Um, I do not want you to just go the opposite end. I want you to know what it, what, what you were doing wrong, then go the other end and find, try to find something in the middle. I'm super big on over-exaggeration on both directions. 
Yeah, they're right on. So I'm sure Dr. Wu and his colleagues have um, a pretty good understanding about how our brain and nervous system work. And we alluded to this earlier that our brain learns from error. And so when you intentionally introduce error, meaning I'm going to do something too much or too little or perhaps too fast or too slow or with um, exaggerated motions, not just to what I'm trying to correct toward, but in the opposite direction, your brain starts to recognize, oh, that's too far, right? So an example for a golfer might be, let's say I'm trying to manage like the loft of my club that I'm delivering dynamic loft to a chip shot. Not only would I want to try to orient toward what is the amount of loft that I'm intending to deliver to the club, but also I would want to hit some with way too little and way too much. Or if I'm trying to create a movement where I'm trying to deliver the ball you know, in a shallowed motion, I would also want to go way over the top and then way too far from the inside. And again, you would think like, well, that's moving me farther away. But what it's doing, it's providing calibration points for your mind and yep. your brain and our nervous system where it starts to get a feel for this is too hot. This is too cold. This is the area where it's quote unquote, just right. Hence the Goldilocks type of analogy. And this is particularly important um, for our brain and nervous system too, because we can use all modes of learning in this way. So if kinesthetically, you can feel what it's like to do something too much or too little. Visually, with the right feedback devices, you can see what's too much or too little. And also, you know, in terms of just talking about things, you can understand like auditorily someone telling you that's too much or too little. And then you start to calibrate the three which is really how really good learning happens for us is that we learn it through, we call this multimodal learning. And so that would be, I can see it, I can perhaps hear it, and I can feel the difference between those. And I've calibrated what those, what I want to do with those, because I've also explored what are the ends that are moving far farther from that. And do you think, you know, going back to some of the stuff we've talked about with the, the neuroscience side where, you know, you kind of want to live in the struggle a little bit. You kind of want to, you kind of want to sit in it. Do you think too, like practicing too much, too little, going back and forth and, and really almost feeling the bad again? Like even if it's a, a shank per se, go shank it, understand what you did wrong. It's not the end of the world. Do you think that that has, that has a, a positive effect on things? Okay. Anytime we get away from something that we're wanting to do, if we're paying attention to that in a non-judgmental way, whether kinesthetically or auditorily or visually, that still provides our brain and nervous system feedback for how to autocorrect. Or, I mean, you might say we are helping it manually correct, but it's still information, yeah. right? If you, um, again, if you're trying to hit a certain loft and then you hit one that's way too low and you pay attention to what that felt like that produced that ball flight or that loft, that again gives you a, a frame of error that allows you to course correct. But yep. what happens is we typically do that and then we go, oh, oh, don't do that again yeah, instead right. of paying attention to what happened in a non-judgmental way, which it's that judgment of that was bad. That was good. You can't do that. Don't let that happen again. That tends to disrupt our ability to actually just kind of correct on the fly, which, again, isn't a magic wand. But you only have to hit so many shanks in a row before your body starts to feel what that feels like. And if you, instead of meeting that with resistance and, uh oh, don't hit another shank, you go, oh, wow, that's what it feels like to have my path be in a, in a direction that just delivers the hosel to the ball before the club face, right? Uh, which is, 
which is something that we don't typically like because it's not producing the outcomes that we want. But again, if you understand kind of how we learn and how our brain learns specifically and allow for some error and instead of meeting it with judgment, it allows us to correct sooner. Uh, and if we're talking about getting better at something like the idea that to get better at golf, that means I never hit poor shots or I've stopped hitting poor shots is incorrect. Really good golfers hit poor shots more often than most people observe on TV. They're pretty good at auto correcting, but not when they're smothering themselves with a really harsh inner dialogue or uh, significant judgments or trying to resist what just happened instead of trying to understand what happened and then being able to course correct. So, yeah, you mentioned a ton of awesome stuff that, that I, I wrote down here. Number one is, is calibration. And I, I love, I love the idea. We talked a lot about, or I've talked a lot to my players a lot about bumpers and bowling, yeah. like overcorrecting both ways, but then you start to calibrate and start to bring in, bring in the variance. Really, you know, you start bringing in and you start understanding, okay, I, I hate it when good players are really, any any golfers that have played for a long time that say I can't curve it one way or the other, I I can't hit a fade to save my life, or I can't hit a draw to save my life, and I'm like, then go hook it. Oh well, I don't I don't want to do that. No, it's what you're gonna have to do. You're gonna have to overcorrect and then and then kind of bring it back. I love the fact that you said the brain learns from from error. So I had a guy coming in a couple of days ago that fought shanks for a long, long, long time. Like I'm talking, wanted to quit shanks and. We worked through it. We kind of got got some stuff to where he started understanding. The one thing that I'll I'll tell guys like him and, and other players is I'm like, look, you don't have a disease, an incurable disease. You are skilled at hitting it off the heel. You are more skilled at hitting off the heel than you are off the toe. And there's other players that would would that have hit it off the toe for so long that they would love to hit it off the heel, right? So you've got to understand one, okay, what are you doing wrong? Okay, so we worked on it and we got it to where it was a little bit more toe biased, but now. He's so locked into the toe and has been hitting off the toe for a long time because he's scared to move it even back closer to the center because he fought shanks for so long. Mm -hmm. And so, again, it's not like I, I want my players to understand that none of this, the, the golf swing is a, is a, um, it's a fluid motion that's ever changing. It's never going to be rock solid, like locked in place. And you're going to do the same thing over and over again. You're always kind of calibrating it. I love the, I love the calibration the calibration uh, thought because that's what this is from calibrating your short game to putting speed to wedges, distance control, launch curve, all of it needs to ebb and flow from too much too little. Just right. When you're slicing it, the goal isn't to hit it straight. The goal is to curve it when you curve it left, when you're hooking it, the goal isn't to hit it straight. The goal is to curve it the other direction. And then you add a little bit of salt, you add a little bit of pepper, you get your recipe right to where then you're hitting the shots that you want to hit. Yeah, and what you're talking about there is kind of um, oftentimes it's difficult for us to go from one thing to a correction without overcorrecting first. Now, this is difficult right. on the fly. If you're playing in a, in a golf tournament where score That's counts, this different. might not be the place to do it. But if you're talking right. about practicing something or perhaps taking a lesson, which again is a, lear a bout of learning, a phrase we've used before, where I'm going to try to practice something, learn something, and get better at it, are we learn faster with allowing for also for overcorrection? Yeah. In the same way. So, Amen. Okay. Um, what are some of the, let's just go kind of through, we, so we have auditory, visual, and kinesthetic learning, and you like to start with visual. What are some of the things you use in a golf lesson that 
perhaps the people can use at home, even if they're on their own, that can give them that visual feedback that perhaps could be helpful for them? Um, you know, in a perfect world, you'd have some type of live view camera or there's some there's some apps out there that do a decent job. If you've got an iPad on the ground in front of you and then your your phone's on a on a tripod, that's that's the best where you can, you know, golf tech does a good job with that where you can swing and see see the motion real time. Um, from there, though, we're so blessed with high speed cameras like these cameras would have cost 20 grand 10, 15 years ago. And they were the size of a, you know, a, a full full computer. Um, and so just to get a tripod, a quick little tripod, put it down in video, a lot of the thing is, it's like, you know, I, I joke, I've got some people in the car business and they talk about how in the car business, all the consumers are so educated now. They know so much about the price of the car and there's no, you can't really sneak one by anybody anymore. And really golfers, the, the golfers themselves are way more educated about the golf swing now than they've ever been because of things like YouTube and these cameras and and we just, we see stuff now. We're not using Granny Hogan video anymore, you know? And so get your phone out and video your golf swing and then ask the question, okay, so what's my big miss? What's the miss I hate? If, if it's a curve issue, contact issue, whatever. And then try to compare yourself to somebody on tour that's built similar similarly to you. You know, if you're six foot four, you know, there's no reason to compare yourself to some little short guy on tour. If you're five foot 10, there's no reason to compare yourself to a you know somebody that's 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 tall, a Cam Young or somebody big. Um, and so I'm a, just a huge fan of doing some side by sides. And so the the first thing I'm going to do is if I see a problem that's you know that that I'm I'm going to need to need to identify and show them, I'm going to typically show it to them first. I may even demonstrate a little bit. Okay, you're doing your takeaways too far inside. You're doing this. You need to fill this or you need to do this. Um, and then I'm going to compare it to a vanilla golf swing, a Justin Rose, an Adam Scott, a Tiger Woods, nothing crazy, even like a maybe a Justin Thomas. He's a little more vertical, but but somebody that doesn't, I'm not comparing him to Jim Furyk. I'm not going to compare him to the outliers, just something that's kind of vanilla and say, look, he does this. This is what our goal is. And and I, I start there. And again, I just implore my students to video some. You don't have to video every swing, but if you're working on something, you've got to do some feedback because feel... While, while I don't completely agree that feel isn't real, um, feel will will lie to us. And it may feel like you're doing what you're asked to do and it looks the exact same or it might have even gotten more, especially if you went out and played a bunch and, and you were you were competing, you're going to go right back to the neuroplasticity and the motor, the, the, the highways, the neuro, neuro the, the uh, neurons firing on those on those highways in your brain and you're going to go right back to what you're comfortable with. So video, get some feedback, however you can. And if, if you can't, then that's when you need to go see an instructor. Yeah. It's, um, always interesting to me whenever I go visit these college programs, how many mirrors they have around in all mm -hmm. of their training facilities. Again, you're just getting real life, real time visual feedback on what it is that you're doing. And I would even echo chase and you're saying when you video your own swing, I would even start with a big, broad, open question of like, what are you seeing? Yeah. Like, as you see your own sing, own swing, what are you noticing, right? Not, this is good, this sucks or whatever, yeah. but learning right. to observe it objectively, like, oh, I'm noticing that my backswing is in from the inside or, you know, the club is laid off at the top, whatever, the things that you're starting to observe. And particularly as people know more about the golf swing than ever, because they've seen a bazillion of them online yeah. and probably seen a bazillion lessons online too, just starting with, okay, well, what am I seeing? Yeah. Um, can help you start to go, okay, well then what do I want to do if I want to start to, you know, see a certain ball flight for myself? 
Yeah, and and that's that's a great point too. I would say like with instructors that I that are coming in and shadowing or I'm working with or whatever. Um, that's one of the first things I'll do. I'll show my students their swing and say, "What do you see? Is there anything specific you you don't like, or you and your old coach didn't like, or current coach, whatever?" Um, and then a lot of times these guys that are are over analytical will will bat will will critique every position along the way. And a lot of times I'm like, "Dude, that's actually good enough. It's plenty good enough to shoot, you know, half." whatever so you're saying handicap it's plenty good enough to shoot a five to, to be a five handicap so it's not it's not causing you your your big issues and so i i think that's that's a um that's a great point sometimes players come in and they've never even seen their golf swing so then that's a little bit different but the guys that have i'm usually getting them to be a little less critical with their motion than they you know would have been before yeah and then the term in psychology and again this is how it relates to learning we learn faster through non-judgment. And the reason is based on how our brain is designed. Like when it finds things threatening, which we as humans typically do, and that's us describing things as good or bad, right or wrong. You know, there's not necessarily a wrong golf swing, but we are trying to deliver it in a certain way. Right. Um, but when we start to observe things more objectively and through non-judgment, what it does is it allows for correction. For example, I've noticed that my golf swing is way over the top. Well, the overcorrection for that is making it more shallow and your instructor can help you do that. That's a terrible golf swing. I don't know what the correction for that is when there's a lot of judgment in that way, which just goes, well, how do you have a non-terrible golf swing? So there's not a lot of really objective and usable feedback when we are looking at things, perhaps actually literally looking at things through a, the lens of judgment. Um, and so that's really important for us to pay attention to when we are kind of using visual aids to help us learn. Yeah. Um, take us through some of the kinesthetic stuff, the resources that people might expect during a lesson or perhaps might be able to use at home. I mean, not everybody has a golf studio, but what are some of the things that you use that kind of help people learn from the mechanical or perhaps the biomechanical feelings they have during a golf swing? Yeah, I'm a I'm a big training aid guy. I like uh, I like using training aids, especially training aids that you can um, hit golf balls with. Um, you don't have to, you know. I I struggle with like stretching aids or aids that you're just going to make the movement in and then put it down and go hit it. I I like, you know, uh, my friend Martin Chuck's done a, done a great job with some tour striker products, Smart Ball, and we use a lot of a lot of Smart Ball. We use a lot of wrist angle stuff from the hanger to you know. GG George Gankus has a good one with um, uh, Sean Foley. David Woods just came out with a good one too with some right wrist stuff. I'm a huge fan of that, um, especially when we have obviously uh, kinematic wrist angle issues and need to flex more, close the face more, open the face more, whatever it is. Um, and then I'm also big on you know you talk about the brain. You know we we either pursue or we avoid, and I'm really big on putting stuff in the way to get people to avoid hitting hitting things, putting a pull down on the ground, moving moving path around, different kind of stuff. Again, it's it's identifying, making sure that the uh, the issue is identified. We understand what the problem is, and then we come up with whatever drills we need to to help it or to to fix it. Like for for low point issue people. So again, we've talked about. Um, golf swing we swing in a pretty much a circle it's not an exact circle but it's pretty close and the club's going to bottom out the bottom of the circle with an iron has to be in front of the golf ball um all the great players in the world they have low point in front of the golf ball it's one of my non-negotiables it should be everybody's non-negotiable and so for me controlling low point is so key so 
for these for these guys that have low point issues, I'm almost always going to go to one or two drills, and I'm going to put a, a towel about two inches behind a golf ball, and the goal is to hit the ball solid and never hit the towel. And it's amazing how difficult that is for some people. And so we'll start without a ball, and so then we'll say, hey, you got to hit the ground, but you can't hit the towel. So you got to hit the ground in front of the golf ball, and typically they'll come over the top of it a little bit just to try to kind of get that low point and 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 contact with the ground way more forward. And so then we'll put something in the way to keep them from coming over the top, but then also to keep them from try to keep them from hitting the towel. So um, I found that avoidance, just like your research has shown, avoidance is a very powerful tool that the brain is going to um, going to implement to survive, and they do the same thing when you put things in the way. So I'm a big big fan of that. The other thing I like to do with again, we'll stick with low point is I like to put a tee down about three to four inches, two to three inches in front of the golf ball. And the goal I'll always say, I'll always have them imagine like, look, what's your favorite game show? And they'll mention the wall or they'll mention whatever. And I'm like, okay, you're on the wall. Producers came up with a new test for you. You've got to hit this. Say it's a seven iron. You got to hit this ball at least 120 yards, but you got to hit the ball in the tee. You got to move the tee. You get one swing, a million boxes on the line right now. And they're like, all right, let's do it. And it's just fun to watch them really grind and try to figure it out. And, and most of the time they'll mess it up. And I'm like, sorry, the producers are real jerks. They're not going to give you another chance. You got, you know, you got no chance. Or it's, I'll put the towel down. And I'm like, if you hit the towel, you owe me a hundred pushups. Let's go, you know? And uh, so I, I like doing that kind of stuff. But again, the, the the importance from these drills is to make sure that you got them set up correctly, making sure that you've identified, you know, exactly what you're trying to fix. And then you're, you're, you're using the right drill correctly to fix the problem. Okay, so you've got some a combo here of some visuals along with perhaps some training aids or something where you're trying to get people to feel what it is that might allow them to deliver the golf club in a way that is more efficient. Partic and for you, I know you're really heavy on low point. Like, what does it feel like to deliver the club where the low point is after the golf ball? Yeah, you know, that's a good point. I never thought of like the towel drill as a, as a, more of a visual learning environment. I always thought of it more like do this and then tell me what it feels like. But I guess that's me asking the question afterwards. So you're right. And I would, I would have them. I'm again, I, I never tell my, I say never, I very rarely tell my players what it should feel like. I tell them once they do the motion correctly, once they move low point more forward then I ask them, okay, what did that feel like? Well, it felt like I got my weight more forward. Awesome. Cool. Like, or it felt like, cause I may have said it should feel like they pressure their left foot a little, their lead foot a little bit more. And they said that felt like they got their head a little bit more forward, whatever it is. I don't, I don't have a problem with that from a, so going, going back to your specific question about, about being more field based, being more kinesthetic based. Um, I, I do a lot of resistance training with, with my players. And so if, say you've got somebody that's not getting to their lead side enough and in, in transition, so they're kind of hanging back on the right foot, they're not as, the athletic motion guys would call it. They're not really recentering. They're not getting down into the left side. I'll take people to the top of the swing and then I'll push them in the wrong direction and I'll get them to engage and move um, and, and recruit muscles to get them to move differently. And then I'm going to quickly ask them, what, it, what does it feel like? And so going back again, training aids specific to your issues are, are, are very, very, very important. Um, but, but we've just got to be careful where training aids will do the work for us. We've just got to make sure that we are, we are doing the correct motion ourselves and we understand it. We don't become too reliant on the training aid to do the, to help us do the motion and we can then transfer it away from the training aid at slow speed and then start to start to build it up. Yeah. Uh, and then if we're talking about 
again, how we learn. So those are kind of three learning areas. So auditory, visual, and kinesthetic. There's also like conceptual understanding for us. So in psychology, we call this procedural, uh, excuse me, we call this declarative learning. Declarative learning is another way of basically saying like a conceptual understanding of something. And this is important for us because again, it combines these. So there's a, this kind of a jigsaw puzzle that when we put these learning pieces together, that's where we gain wisdom. Wisdom is us pairing experiential learning and conceptual learning together, where what we understand and what we actually experience come together. You know, it's a big fancy way of psychologically how we kind of define wisdom. Like what I think and I understand about something and how it actually played out for me, both internally and perhaps even outcome-wise, there's a merging between those two. Like we know for sure when it comes to behavior change for us as human beings, whether it's trying to change a habit, even a, th a pattern of thought, that without these two things meeting, it's very difficult for us to make change because there's a disparity between these two. You know, this is our, you know, and I'll get into our golf lesson, perhaps learning here in a second here, but if I'm trying to kind of set the stage for pairing these two, our mindfulness training, which you and I have talked about briefly on here, is training us to conceptually understand our inner experience, that's our thoughts and feelings, in a way that then the practice of mindfulness is to actually experience your thoughts and feelings differently. So rather than getting caught up in them, allowing ourselves to coexist with them, but without having to do anything with them, that is a different direct experience with our own thoughts and feelings where we actually experience them differently and with the right conceptual understanding of what thoughts and feelings are, creates a whole different relationship and a new wisdom about our thoughts and feelings. In the same way, many people have, a am going to guess because they've seen so many golf swings either on TV or online, have a pretty good conceptual understanding of the golf swing. And if they don't, then it's your job to help fill in the blanks. And then what you're trying to do is merge the gap between these two, which is like, can we go now? create a kinesthetic or a visual experience that matches that conceptual understanding. Again, correct me where I'm off course. No, I mean, I, I was just thinking the whole time. I'm like, I think my style of coaching is in the conceptual. I'm like, I'm, I'm living in that world probably too much. I, with a new student first lesson, I'll, we may hit five shots. Like my whole thing is to make sure they understand their problem. I get, I, I like to joke. I get a lot of desperate guys. So They've been through the, the, the brick and mortar lesson, the typical lesson that they're used to. And I'm like, okay, look, you're here, you're desperate. I want you to know, and a lot of times they'll know their problem. I have this chronic issue, but a lot of times no one's ever gotten beneath the surface or a little deeper into um, what is exactly causing that problem. Whether it is a range of motion issue, it's a physical limitation, it's an injury, it's something, it's something before, before the problem, which it all, almost always is. No one's ever really identified it. So I'm, I'm, I will spend the majority 50 minutes of the lesson making sure they understand what they're tr trying to do and why they're trying to do it before they leave. Now, I don't, it's hard for me at times, again, I'll get guys coming in right after work and whatnot. It's hard for me at times to, to understand or to make sure that they are, um, accepting they are on time they are grounded they are where they need to be mentally for that specific lesson but i'm going to do my best to make sure that they understand this at 
at the deepest levels before I'm going to ask them to go, you know, hit a golf shot on the range, let alone try to go play with this in a tournament. Yeah, that merging of, you know, and again, in psychology, we call this declarative knowledge and we would call it procedural knowledge, which is basically procedural is another way of saying like how you directly experience something. Pairing those two is difficult right. for us at times. Um, and oftentimes we, we don't really see like when we pair these two eventually, oftentimes the learning accelerates really fast. So let's let's use your uh, swing for a second. Like you, you've got range motion issues with with right shoulder. Don't have a lot of external rotation. So for those for those of you at home, like external is in the back swing. Your trail elbow, my right hand golfer. So my right elbow is working more um, towards the ball before my hand does. That's called external rotation. The other way would be if my hand started down and my elbow stayed back. That is internal rotation. Um, so Doc, you. You have you. I think you understand your problem, but haven't have had a hard time fixing it. Do you think that, from a conceptual level, do you understand? Do you do you understand your problem well enough? Is there anything that? Um, how can I ask this question? Is it a physical issue at this point for you, or is it a learning issue? Is there more that you need to learn about your problem to give you a better chance to fix it? Yeah, it's it's probably a some of column A, some of column B, some of column C. So column A is certainly, you know, I've had my shoulder repaired a couple of times. Like it, there's a limitation to that range of motion that is, um, you know, if, I've heard many instructors saying that, uh, you know, on your downswing, if, if against your right arm, like you lose the, the arm wrestle. Yeah. Meaning like your, your hand, if you're, if you're, if you were making a right angle with your shoulder where you're basically your hand is in the air, that means your hand goes back behind your head. Uh, I can't lose that arm wrestle. It's physically yeah. not, at least at this point, you know, you, I can so, do things to increase the range of motion, but that is prime. That's barrier number one. So you're going to have a tendency to steepen the shaft in, in the downswing. If you're not, even if, even if I'm tension free and doing whatever the tendency is to steepen the shaft because the shoulder yep. only rotates backwards so far. Right. Yep. So that's column a, which makes it difficult to shallow the club. Column B is me still also because I've had this shoulder injury long before I started playing golf. I've, it's very unlikely that I have experienced and really felt what it's like to strike a golf ball the way the golf club is designed. Right. So there, so there's a kin, there's a kinesthetic learning to that of what does impact feel like when the club is delivered in a way that is again, matches how the golf club is designed, which, cause what we are really talking about building a golf swing, you're like, this piece of equipment is bet, bent in this way that if you deliver it like this, it's very likely to produce a very functional golf shot. Right. right. Like so, you, if the golf club was designed differently, the swing would look differently. Yeah, right? correct. So, so that's so, column A, column B. Yeah. So real quick, sorry, but I, I, got, I want to touch on something real quick. So the fact that even when you were healthy, the fact that you've never experienced call it, we'll call it whatever proper shallowing of, of the golf swing on the, or on the, of the golf club on the downswing, then it's going to be really hard. You may so call it. So the, the three learning styles, kinesthetic, auditory, visual, you may be fine in that, but you, you don't ever quite get it into from a conceptual standpoint because you haven't experienced. So therefore you don't really have the wisdom. You've never really done it. So it makes it harder for your brain again, going back to neuroplasticity to, to, to dive into those highways. It's going to go the original route that you, you pre-wired or wired so, so well. 
perhaps. Yeah. Like, so if we're really, if we're using me as an example, my conceptual understanding of the golf swing is probably pretty good. I've seen hundreds of golf lessons from the world's best teachers while just being out on the range and working with my own clients and had a bazillion conversations with people like you about it and seen it before. Right. So right. my conceptual understanding of the golf swing, it's, it's not elite, but it's, it's pretty good kinesthetically because my body my shoulder does not allow for a certain level of shallowing it's very unlikely that my body has kinesthetically learned how to move to the golf ball in a way that is super effective in terms of like if you're really trying to hit a super functional golf shot so there's the emerging of those two and so there's like most people i have some physical limitation i have a long motor pattern already developed that is compensating for a, a a physical limitation or at least a range of motion limitation and then therefore like it still hasn't figured out quite what it's supposed to feel like to hit the ball now i've hit some super functional golf shots and i can get it around but in terms of you know if you saw my swing you wouldn't be like oh wow that's an elite level golf swing um in part because of an injury and in part because i haven't quite learned it yet do you think that your so what i'll what i'll usually tell my students when it comes to this okay so we're your brain's going to avoid pain pretty aggressively. I wouldn't say at all costs, but it's pretty aggressively. It's, it's dis- brain is specifically designed to avoid pain. Okay. So at all costs, it's going to avoid pain in a, in a golf swing motion. It's really hard to perform when you're, especially coming to impact or have some type of lead side issue where you're going to hammer into it. Like I always struggled, you know, with a ball next to a tree where I knew I was going to hit my hand or I knew I was going to hit the club and like pain was coming. It was always really hard to do it. Um, the other thing that I, I'll tell people is, so you're going to avoid, you're going to avoid pain at all costs. Um, and then, um, the other thing that I would say is that, um, you're also going to avoid, you're going to avoid embarrassment at all costs. And then you also want to play to a certain level. So what I mean by that is, do you think that you, you've got some athleticism you can create some power? Do you think that, I see it a lot with my students, do you think that your issues come from always trying to power it at a acceptable level for you, which then is going to give you less options from a motor pattern standpoint, from a, from a kinesthetic standpoint? Like One of the things when we first worked together when you came to Houston was I, I would slow you down a little bit and the right elbow, the right arm would tend to work the way that we wanted it to work. But anytime you revved it up and went faster, Again, the brain length of pack least resistance and it went right back to what you're, what you're trying to do. So does this go into, um, and I, don't, I don't know the scientific word, but does this go into the fact that like, so I see it all the time with some of my players, they just don't want to go slow enough and lose distance and give up competency to then make the change. Oh, I would gladly give up two clubs of distance to be able to deliver the club. So up. not your, so not your, not that, that's no. not the problem. I tried, I tried. No. Yeah, and I don't have any pain in that shoulder. It's just it doesn't go very far uh, in terms of rotation. Like, there's very little flexion in it. Um, But, yeah, I mean, if you could say you're only going to hit your 9-iron 130 yards instead of 155 like it is now, but it's going to go straight way more often, and your ball flight's going to be consistent, your spin rate's going to be good, like, I would take that. Because I get it around like that, no problem. Uh, And the speed will come. But I mean, I do a lot of low speed drills. Like I probably only hit uh, outside of a lesson when I'm practicing by myself, which isn't very often right now. But the time zone I do get it, I very rarely hit full speed golf shots. 
Yeah. Yeah. It's almost always half shots or full swings that are at half speed because my prioritization is trying to get the motion correct. And again, my challenge is that I've got to figure out how to get there when my body is not exactly helping in that way. All right. So what about practice? How do we, how do we practice? Um, there's in my world, there's really two types of practice that we talk about. Um, we talk about block practice, block practices at the same shot on the same wide to the same target to the same, pretty much the same club, same distance, so we're a bunch of seven irons over and over and over again. And there's been a lot of people in my industry and some, some on your side of the aisle that has started to push back against or has said that block practice is not the way to do it, that we want to do the other type of practice that I'll talk about in a second. And one of the things that I'll say, and that I'll, I'll say now, that's random practice. So random practice would be more like golf. It would be more like you hit a seven iron at a target, you change clubs, you change slides, you change speeds, you change curves, you change everything. That's more like real golf. And so there's been some pushback against block practice. That's how we used to always practice. And it said that we need to just do random practice. One of the things that I would say is, there it's never one size fits all approach. We want to do a little bit of both. If we're like in doc space, if we're trying to change a motor pattern, if we're trying to fix the way his trail arm works, we're going to need a little bit more block practice over random practice. We can add random practice as, as we start to get more comfortable with the motion. But again, not a one size fits all approach. Both are useful. Both are um, can be very beneficial when used the right way. The closer we get to tournaments, I would say random practice is a bit more uh, is way more beneficial. Um, but if we just took a lesson and we're trying to change something, it's block practice all day long. Yeah, and it's also we're finding in our research that the type of practice and how valuable it is is also skill level dependent. Uh, quite frankly, yeah. the the worse you are at something, particularly as an adult, the more block practice can indeed be valuable. As we talked about in our last episode, over the age of 25, our brain is designed to protect and reinforce and further ingrain the neural pathways we already have that are established. And that includes the motor patterns for golf swings, right? And so to um, start to rewire those, we need reps in something else. And so there might be, for someone, let's say you're a 15 to 20 handicap and you're trying to get down to 10, block practice not necessarily just raking and ripping balls for two hours, but block practice where you are doing the same thing repeatedly may indeed be more valuable than randomized practice. As we get better at something and our skills become more functional and more refined in a functional way, there is still an element that is valuable about block practice. You know, For example, if you go watch professional golfers practice, all of them are doing some block practice. Usually it's early in their practice and it's not in a huge amount, but there is some. And this is kind of what I would call like maintenance practice for people where they're getting back to like, these are the fundamentals that I do to refine my motions, whatever those might be, whether on the putting green or on the driving range, etc. And they're actually going to like legit hit the same club to the same target a variety of different times. They might then switch clubs to a different target, but then also another patch of block practice. And what they're doing is it's basically like a maintenance session for your work. And we see this across a variety of different sports too. I remember you know, I played soccer at a really high level. The beginning of practice was always block practice type of something with uh, either a footwork or a technique, something where you're just drilling the thing, right? We also know that 
all block practice is not helpful for us unless the thing you're doing is a block style grill. So for example, if you were throwing darts, this kind of the same motion toward the same target almost every single time. Golf is far less than that. And I'm overgeneralizing darts a little bit, but the bottom line is in golf, you very rarely hit the same shot to the same distance with the same trajectory. Even if you hit the same shape of shot, like many players do, you're not hitting the same shot many times over in which that case then creating some either some randomized or we might even say simulated practice where your practice looks more like you would actually play when you're actually in competition is really valuable. And the better you get, the more this ratio starts to flip where it goes from more block sub random to some devoted block practice, much more randomized practice as well. Um, so that ratio tends to flip for us. And as a general rule of thumb, it's the wor- the the higher your handicap, or we might say the lower you are on the learning curve, block practice might fill 75 to 80% of your practice. And the 25% might be something that is randomized or gamified. And then it would flip the other way around as you get better, where your block practice would be far less than even half of your practice. And you'd be far better off, um, with randomized or, or perhaps gamified or uh, simulated practice for the much larger percent. Yeah. So like if uh, I've got a 30, a, a beginning golfer that can't hit the ground where she or he wants to hit the ground, they need a bunch of block practice. A lot of block, a lot of block practice, Part- particularly an adult over the age of 25. Yeah. Um, is there any research behind the amount of time that we spend practicing. Is there any, like, are we better off going in 30 minute little spurts? Is it okay? I mean, do you ever recommend that your players sit out there for three or four hours and, and beat balls? Like what, what do you recommend from a, 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 a neuroscience? Standpoint? Yeah. It's very unlikely that like three hours of straight practice is going to be super productive for us simply because we're going to run out of focus and energy to be doing something really well that long. Um, Even in a round of golf, you're not hitting golf balls for five hours. So it's not quite the same. You know, again, use an analogy of like working out. Like certainly you can work out for an extended period of time at a pretty high intensity. But even for the most well-trained athletes, after about 90 minutes, you start to hit a point of diminishing returns. So the only sports where we see that practicing that long for that intense is like your endurance sports. Like if you're trying to get ready to run a marathon or something of that nature. And in fact, with many sports, you start to see the risk of injury after about 90 minutes. It starts to climb pretty exponentially because your body's put in a ton of repetition, like just do the same thing over and over again. You know, there's a reason there's a pitch count on pitchers. There's a reason there's oftentimes swing uh restrictions for volleyball players with certain motions i would say with most people particularly if you're a handicap golfer and you're not a pro golfer you'd be far better off doing really high quality practice for 30 minutes five times a week than you would be once a week beating balls until your hands hurt or you know if you start to really feel like your muscles are having to tense up because you're tired enough that you can't make the motion freely that's probably a pretty good sign it's time for a break. 
most of our research shows that for any type of learning bout, whether it's motor learning or cognitive learning, 90 minutes is about the maximum window that we can focus long enough and have enough energy to do something um, at a high enough clip that we're engaged with it well enough to learn from it, whether that's reading a book or whether that's golf practice. You know, there's a reason like we don't have class sessions that usually last more than an hour and a half. And if they do, they typically schedule a break in between, because if you didn't, there's you go past that point of focus, diminishing returns. Focus is a finite resource for us. And if we don't renew it and train it, then you could practice as long as you want, but you're not really engaged with the thing in a way where your brain's encoding what's happening. So if we're in a situation where we're going to need to be out there for longer, or, or, or let's just say I'm a brain surgeon that's going to have to do, perform a five-hour surgery, yep. after, 90, after 90 minutes, what do you recommend? Well, if, if let's say you are doing something with the high, let's say you're a pro golfer or a brain surgeon, like you might need to incrementally increase the amount of practice that you do. Or if you are going to do that, they are going to schedule some breaks in. Like even with, uh, and I do, I can say this with some accuracy because I work with some brain surgeons. If it's a six hour brain surgery, they are still taking breaks. Right. They're, they're pretty short breaks because your brain's exposed. Yeah. Yeah, um, but that's why they have a couple of different people on the table who can do certain things, but they take short breaks because like they five, know five minutes. What's it, the time? Maybe less than that. If you're in the middle of a brain surgery, because again, someone's brain is exposed to yeah. the elements, but even with pilots, like the term, um, what do they call it? Power nap. It's actually not really a power nap, but it's a bunch of research that showed that if pilots take a break before a long flight and then schedule a nap in a flight, a long flight, the, the chances of something going awry and them having a problem are drastically reduced. So essentially they're building in recovery before and during their training and or their actual performance. Not all performance settings allow for this, but the bottom line is that again, focus is a finite resource for us and it is vital to practice well, to have our focus on the thing that we're doing when it's happening. And so if, if we're just beating balls for hours at a time, even if we're doing the thing physically, oftentimes there's not a lot of learning going on because we're not focused on it enough for our brain to lay down that layer of acetylcholine. Acetylcholine again is that brain neurochemical that highlights the neuroplastic changes for our brain to make while we are asleep. It requires us to be focused on something for our brain to recognize, well, this must be important enough for us to learn, which is why being distracted during practice or being distracted in our performance, we don't typically learn very well from it because our brain doesn't see it as something important enough to actually pay attention to. Except all my players. One other uh, uh, term that you use that we haven't really talked about a whole lot is gamify. It's a gamify. So the idea of gamifying something is basically rewarding the pra rewarding certain uh, types of practice. So like the way I would do it, if I was going to gamify a drill, I would say, okay, we're going to try to hit it between, hit it in a fairway on the range, pick fairway, two targets, we're going to try to hit the fairway. You get one point for hitting the fairway, you get two points for hitting it the intended curve. So I'm going to try to draw this one or I'm going to try to fade this one. And then you lose a point if you, if you curve it the wrong way, you lose a point if you hit it outside the yeah. fairway. So um, talk about the research on gamifying and what its benefits are. Yeah, so the research on gamifying is still in its infancy, so it's still young, so it's difficult to make like real conclusions about it. What the research shows us so far is that it can definitely help 
make skill acquisition accelerated because what you're doing is you're creating a game or a competition around not just the outcome, but the actual skill or strategy that you're trying to employ. So, for example, if you were playing a wedge game, you would get points for hitting it closest to the hole. You would also get points for hitting it like if you could hit it lower than a certain thing or higher than a certain thing, right? So you're actually starting to create a point system for the skill execution, not just the outcome. And what that does is it essentially creates a game within the game. Um, you know, when I was growing up playing soccer, again, at a, a relatively high level, the game was like, you have, if you can score a goal, great. But if you can score a goal by first getting the ball to the wide players in this free flowing channel, which essentially means stretch a defense across right. the field, then you would get extra points because again, what you're doing is you're gamifying or you're creating positive consequences for doing the things that are more likely to help you get the results that you want. So it's basically taking a game your skills and making a game out of it or a strategy you're using and making a game out of it rather than just hit it down the fairway so again you're you're highlighting a skill execution and what we know is that it definitely helps people stay engaged with tasks um, and increases motivation during this is a reason why if you for example if you have a trackman unit uh, which I know most people probably listening to this don't because they're pretty expensive but if you do, there's a feature on it where essentially you're hitting toward a target. You might be playing a wedge game and it will tell you, did you gain strokes or did you lose strokes based on that? So that would be more of an in-game competition. Gamifying would be, I have that, plus I get an extra whatever if I can deliver the golf ball to the hole in this type of fashion. Yeah, I, I love what you said about, about wedges because a lot of players, a lot of people don't realize how low PGA Tour players hit their wedges. Yeah. There. So... Yeah, so we're gonna we're gonna try to get better from sixty yards, but we're also gonna add rewards for flighting it lower than we have in the past. So we're not only gonna get better at presenting dynamic loft, which is lofted impact, the amount of lofted impact, we're also gonna get more precise at from sixty to eighty yards. So it's kind of a double a double whammy of, of positives. Yeah. And what you can do is you can pair that a lot with what we talked about before, which was like you can gamify in a way that is too much or too little, right? So we might know, for example, there's a window for a half wedge that is actually like a medium trajectory. Yep. So you could create a game gamification practice where you go, okay, you get points for hitting it through there. But then you also, now the next level is, can you go over that? Next level is, can you go under that? And essentially you're dealing, you're doing that. Like, again, it's the Goldilocks. It's too hot. It's too cold. It's right in the middle where you're now combining two low learning styles of finding a, overcorrection point an undercorrection point and these frames of references while also creating a game in it and what we know is that just kind of makes things more fun and more engaging for us and what's fun and engaging for us we typically get curious about and when we're curious about stuff and engage with it we learn much faster curious giving ourselves permission to explore i love I, I use that all the time yeah, and if you think again, we'll just we're getting a little bit in, but again, this is the golf beneath the surface podcast. If yeah. you go beneath the surface for us as human beings, psychologically and emotionally, which again is run by our nervous system, which is the same system that runs our golf swings, we we operate in three levels. We operate in our safety and comfort zone. Then outside of that is this exploration zone. We might call this our growth zone, and it's uncomfortable and it's uncertain out here. And then outside of that is our danger zone or what we might say our threat zone. 
And so what gamification and learning for us, what we're really trying to do is can I stay outside of my comfort and safety zone long enough for me to explore and actually learn and grow at something? And to do that, oftentimes gamifying is available. This is why I talked about earlier, like when we get really judgmental of ourselves and others, it takes us into our danger zone because no human being really likes to be judged. And it push, and the danger is because when we get into our danger zone, real or perceived, we don't go back to our growth zone. Our default setting is to go back to our comfort zone, right? And we don't learn in our comfort zone. There's not enough agitation. There's not enough challenge. There's not enough uncertainty. And so all the things that we're talking about here, whether it's auditory learning, visual learning, kinesthetic learning, or conceptual learning, is to try to get us to be out into this growth zone, to this exploration zone longer and more effectively without diving into one of the other zones too big. This is why block practice, just all out block practice for a professional player isn't effective. It's too comfortable. There's yeah, not there's not enough agitation and exploration and changing yeah. things, right? But at the same time, if you're a really high handicap golfer, you're a 20 handicap, full-on randomized and um, s basically simulated practice is too far outside of your skill zone. And it's too easy for it to be in the danger zone, which again, jumps you back to your comfort zone, where you're just raking balls and doing the same familiar uh, motor patterns over and over again. And so if we're really kind of putting a bow on our learning here, we all learn through different modalities and different combinations thereof. And there are a variety of practice strategies that can help highlight those and perhaps teaching aids, learning aids, whether it's a mirror or a, a physical training aid. But what we're trying to do is hang out in this growth zone as much as we can, because the more we hang out in there, the wider it gets and the farther away our danger zone becomes and the more license we have to give ourselves freedom to hang out in that space. And if you look at the psychology of people who are really fast learners, their psychology is built in a way to sit in that space without ejecting from it when things start to get agitating and uncertain and, and difficult. So to stay in the so growth zone for, to stay in the growth zone for a high, high handicap, they need more block practice. So that way, if we go too random, too fast, they'll almost get too frustrated. And the, the failure, failure rate is too high. And that's obviously threatening for yeah. most people. Like not, I'm not expecting even professional golfers to have yet developed a psychological framework that allows them to sit in their um, growth zone with a high rate of failure. And by high rate, I mean like way outside what their current expectation might be, right? Okay. So if you're a 20 handicap and you're doing randomized practice and you're just hitting it all over the place, it's very unlikely that you're going to do that for long enough to get better at it because it's way too far outside of your current skill level. It's the same reason if you took a little kid who's just learning how to ride a bike and just pushed them down a hill, yeah. they're probably not going back to that hill because it's too much too fast, right? Yeah. But if you took a rock star mountain biker and put him or her on a flat road with nothing to work around or over or through, they're going to get really bored really quick and then they're not going to be engaged enough in what they're doing. So it's finding the right, like we do want a certain failure rate again, because if your failure rate is too low, you're not going to learn. There's not enough error. But if the failure rate is so high and so uh, intense, it pushes us back to our comfort zone. And then again, we don't really like the thing that we're doing, in which case then we're probably not going to be engaged with it and focused on it. We're going to be more interested in getting it over with. And we know for sure that is a massive disruptor of learning, which is why 
there's a lot of work right now, perhaps redesigning how kids go to school, because a lot of the times they're trying to get through class, not be in class, because it's just, quite frankly, it's just not very engaging. And then going back to the the tour player, just hitting the same shot over and over again, gives them almost a false sense of security. Not They're not in growth it, mindset because they're, keeps they're protected. Doing that type of practice is very tempting for good players because it's comfortable. Yeah. The downside of that is it makes you comfortable. You're not actually getting better. You're feeling yeah. better. And then when you go into a performance realm where you're not, don't have the luxury to hit the same shot several times in a row, now the disparity between your comfort zone of block practice and your actual performance is too wide, which feels like you're in your danger zone, and then that kicks you back to your comfort zone. And the comfort zone for a really good player is making some type of steery, guidey swing. The unstable confidence stuff, the fact that after the bad shot on the range, you can hit the same one again and think you got it again, and then the, the time difference Correct. between it and the course is, is so much yeah. wider, makes it tougher. Um, well, Doc, I have to say, for a soccer player, you powered through this. Most soccer guys I know that get hurt, they, uh, they oh, just lay on the ground. Soccer, and, soccer and, players are the toughest in the world, man. We get they went, toes they stepped went. on, teeth. Every single injury I've ever had, and I have a many, all come from soccer. Yeah, all the fake injuries I see in the Euro yeah, yeah, yeah. League over there rolling around. They the do they do have a bit of a of, of a pizzazz or what is it? You were this was kind of MJ flu game, man. You powered through this like a champ. Yeah, I'll go with that analogy because it sounds really good, but uh, yeah, I I I'm, I'm a, a po- as much as a soccer fan as I am, which I am. I am opposed to diving. But it has become a very effective strategy because the refs won't call it in the same way that slow play has become a big thing in golf because nobody gets busted for it. Yeah, well, uh, we'll save that topic for another time. Yeah. Um, at GBTS podcast. Thanks again for, for hanging in there with us. And uh, again, give us feedback. Give us uh, you know any, any kind of feedback you got. We're all ears. Yes, everyone, please send us your questions. Send us your topics. Um, Let's make this podcast as much about the listeners as we can. Thank you for joining us and look forward to you joining us again. Chase, it was good to see you as always. And hopefully next time uh, we'll be feeling a little bit better, at least on my end. That's right. Sounds good. We'll see you next time. See you guys.